0: Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. And Matthew says in verse 1 of chapter 3, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judah, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Amen? We could say this morning, Not only is the kingdom of heaven near, but it's come. Because he was pre-announcing Jesus, of course, who would come declaring the kingdom. And then jumping to verse 11, he says, in fact, if you look in Luke's version, Luke says the people were waiting expectantly. Anyone expectant here this morning? Two? Okay. (laughs) Let's increase the game. You've been singing, as a God of miracles. Do you really believe it? Amen? Okay. Verse 11, John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Well, usually when I visit you, I'm given the freedom to... Uh, preach or teach on what I feel the Lord lays on my heart. But on this occasion, I've agreed with uh, Claire and Tony that I'll contribute into your current, uh, firm foundations teaching series. That's based on Hebrews chapter six, where the writer lists, uh, makes a list of six foundational Christian doctrines, namely just to refresh you in case you've missed any of them. The importance of repentance, uh, from behavior that leads to ultimate death, the need for faith in God, because the Bible teaches us we're not just to live by our physical senses, our smell, our taste, our eyesight, but by faith, the matter of Christian baptisms, the practice of laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And from memory, the writer to the letter of Hebrews says, and God willing, will move on from these basic things. But we're going to refresh ourselves in in these things, which is always good to do. And last Sunday, I understand that Claire spoke on the subject of water baptism. And today, I've been asked to teach on the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And if time permits, to also include something on the laying on of hands. Let's be very, very clear that it's always been God's intention that every born-again Christian believer should experience two baptisms. This was foreshadowed in Old Testament times when God's people Israel were, in the words of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 2, baptized into the cloud and also baptized in the sea. In other words, they were uh, baptized in the cloud of God's presence as they journeyed through the wilderness and they were baptized in the sea, referring to when they passed through the Red Sea which, of course, was a significant aspect of them leaving behind their old life of bondage. We sang this morning, I'm no longer a slave, amen? I'm a child of God. And water baptism uh, pictures a lot of that. As, as, and they went through the Red Sea, you'll remember, as they embarked on their journey, their pilgrimage, if you will, with God. And these two experiences that Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 Referring back to the days uh, at the time of Moses, when they were going through the wilderness, etc, these two were pointing forward to the two baptisms which God has provided for all Christian believers: full immersion, baptism in water, symbolic of the death of the old life and the raising up to newness of life through faith of course in christ 's death and resurrection, and the baptism in the Holy Spirit when A believer is immersed in God's tangible presence coming down from above. We've been singing spirit come down uh, like being enveloped in a cloud, but at the same time being filled within with like overflowing river of God's spirit that Isaiah spoke about in Isaiah 55 that was read to us in the meeting already this morning. John the Baptist, of course, Preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And he baptized people in the River Jordan as a symbolic cleansing. I can tell you, we were baptized in the River Jordan, it's like an icy tomb. There's nothing, <laughs> there's nothing kind of romantic about being baptized in the River Jordan. His message, however, this is what I want to emphasize, what I read from Matthew's account, his message was there was more than water baptism. Hello? Hallelujah? Did I hear? No? <laughs> he he was very clear, I baptize you in water for repentance of sins, but there is one coming after me, referring of course to Jesus, his cousin. And of course, he's the greater one, he said. But in Jewish culture, of course, John would have been the greater one because he was older. But he was saying, no, 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 no. There's one who's existed from the beginning of time. He's greater than me. He's going to follow me. And he will baptize people with the Holy Spirit. I'm only able to baptize in water. I'm aware this morning. I've been praying before we came out this morning. Lord, because of the gifting you've given me, I can teach on this subject, but only you can baptize people in the Holy Spirit. And John was saying, I can baptize in water, but only he can baptize in the Holy Spirit. And the greater one, he will come on after. To me, and this message of John was actually confirmed by Jesus himself when he announced, and the Scripture says he announced it in a loud voice. In fact, the Scripture says he stood up and cried out in a loud voice, which would be out of the ordinary because the rabbis would sit on high stools, as they still do today, and they would teach their disciples. But but at the Jerusalem temple, Jesus stood up in a loud voice. And he declared, quoting from Isaiah 55, that's already been announced this morning in our meeting, he cried out, if there's anyone thirsty out there, let them come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the Old Testament scriptures have said, rivers, go to the New King James Version for this translation, the NIV is useless at this point. (laughs) It's it's, it's inaccurate. I use it because it's the easiest one to read publicly. But it's, it says, from memory, it says streams, doesn't it? But it's a river experience, rivers plural, rivers of living water will flow from within the people. He was referring to the experience of the baptism in the Holy Spirit, which John, the Baptist, had already spoken of. Now, let me try, and not get too excited, but let me try and help you Picture the setting of the occasion when Jesus made this announcement so you can understand more fully the significance of what he was promising. I'm in John chapter 7. And John chapter 7 tells us it was on the last and greatest day of the Feast of Tabernacles that he made this announcement. The feast is a bit like uh, a traditional church in, in our culture, the traditional church harvest festival. In fact, it it was held, it still is held, at that time of the year, around the end of September, early October. This year, you can check it out in your Jewish calendar, it began on the 13th of October. And in Jesus' day, as part of the feast, a specially appointed priest was sent to the pool of Siloam with a golden water jar to bring back water from the pool to the temple. And the water from the Pool of Siloam was then poured out by the high priest into a basin at the foot of the altar. And from another jar, wine was poured into the same basin. And water and wine mingled together and then flowed through special pipes all the way back to the Brook of Kidron. And this ritual was a symbolic act that the rainy season, which Israel is so dependent on, was about to begin. And in this symbolic ceremony, every year they prayed to God to open the windows of heaven with abundant rain. Bible commentators, however, explain it wasn't just a time of thanksgiving, but it was also a prophetic act, looking forward to the prophesied outpouring of the Holy Spirit not just upon Israel, but upon all nations, which the Jews believed would occur under the reign of the Messiah King, whom God had promised would come. This ritualistic pouring of water went on, we're told, for six days, and on the seventh day, it came to a great climax called the Day of the Great Hosanna. When the mingled water and the wine was poured out amidst the blasting of trumpets and the singing of the Levites with the people waving palm branches and chanting from Psalms 113 right through to 118. And just for a sample, it included things like, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad. O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord from the house of the Lord. Lord, we will bless you. And it was into this setting, this great time of thanksgiving, uh, 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 of celebration. It was into this setting that suddenly Jesus stood up and he cried out in a loud voice on the lines of, If anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, just as the scripture has prophesied, and just as you're looking forward to with all the ceremony you're taking part in, rivers of the Holy Spirit's life-giving water will flow out of their innermost being. What Jesus was saying clearly by implication was, I am the fulfillment of all your hopes and prayers. Come to me and drink. Do you know he still says that? The Spirit of God, even this morning, has said it right through the prophet Isaiah, the words of him this morning, come to me, come to me, and drink. And in the very next verse of John chapter 7, verse 39, just so we're absolutely clear, so there's no mistaking what Jesus was saying, John, prompted by the Holy Spirit, adds a verse of explanation to what Jesus has been talking about. You don't find that very often in the scriptures. You used to have to pray about it and get the explanation, don't you? Get the understanding. But it's so, so clear because I believe this is so, so important that John added in verse 39 of of John 7 that Jesus' announcement was referring to the Holy Spirit whom those who believed in Jesus were later to receive, for up until that time, it says, the Spirit had not yet been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Wow. John states clearly that Jesus was speaking of a future outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which couldn't take place until Jesus had been Glorified. Now, we, of course, are blessed to be living in the time when Jesus has been glorified. Because following his death and resurrection, he ascended, i.e. he returned to heaven, and some ten days later after his ascension, he was glorified, meaning he was exalted to the highest place in the universe and crowned as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The day of Jesus' glorification, or another word would be his coronation in heaven, was the very day when on earth the Jewish people were celebrating the feast of Pentecost. In heaven, they were celebrating the enthronement or the glorification of Jesus to God's throne. It was his coronation as king of heaven and earth. And as part of the celebrations in heaven, the Holy Spirit was poured out from heaven to earth just as Jesus had promised. The coming of the Holy Spirit to believers in that special way was the king's coronation gift for all born again children of the kingdom of God. Amen. If you were singing this morning, I'm no longer a slave, I'm a child of God, then that gift is for you. Yeah? Because it was for all children of the kingdom of God. Let me give you an illustration. Our present queen of England, United Kingdom, ascended to the throne of the United Kingdom on the death of her father on the 6th of February, 1952. That might help you with your quiz, I don't know. (laughs) But it was, as was the case for Jesus, at a later date, that the queen was glorified, was enthroned, was actually appointed as queen. Anyone know that date? 2nd of June, 1953. The next year, in fact when she was crowned on the occasion of her coronation, otherwise known as her glorification or her enthronement. And on that occasion, some of you look like you're old enough to know this. (laughs) Almost as old as me is what I mean. On that occasion, a coronation gift was given to the children of the queen's Kingdom. In fact, I've got mine with you to show me. All... No, my wife said that to this woman. All the children of the Queen's Kingdom, the United Kingdom, by virtue of being a citizen, a child of the Kingdom, received a coronation gift from the Queen. And I've lost my place. Now, I didn't bring the mug, I brought the cup. I thought it was enough mugs around. I thought, I thought it was more kindly to use the illustration that we're like empty cups, so. not mugs. You'll get me on sidetrack, David. Naughty, naughty. <laughs> okay. Now, my point is this. In the nat- Jesus often taught in the natural, so in the spiritual. And he used things like seed and things like that. My point is this. As a citizen of the United Kingdom, we were given a memorial, cup and saucer. But when the King of Kings, on the occasion of his coronation, he gave to every citizen of the kingdom of God, every born-again believer, a much more wonderful, precious gift than any cup and saucer. The gift of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Far more personal and far more powerful than a cup and saucer. The gift of the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the commonly evidence of speaking in other tongues. At the coronation of King Jesus, when he was glorified as King of kings, the Holy Spirit was poured out of heaven upon citizens of God's kingdom, upon everyone that was thirsty. That was really the criteria. And from out of their innermost beings... We see the evidence when we read the book of the Acts of the Apostle, we see the evidence of like rivers of living water began to flow out of them everywhere they went. The life of God was taken by them. And this experience, which began on the day of Pentecost, with the day of Pentecost outpouring, has continued ever since. And it's a God given gift intended for all born-again children of God's kingdom, for all Christians. But sadly, from experience, including my own personal experience, not everyone has received this precious gift, which was given for them. You see, although this cup and saucer, careful, was given by the Queen for me when I was four years of age, I didn't know about it and I therefore hadn't received it and hadn't got the use of it until just over two years ago. I was clearing out the family home with my sisters following the death of my mother when one of my sisters suddenly said, Roy, this is yours. Because by birth, I'm a citizen of the United Kingdom. This had been rightfully mine for 64 years, but I hadn't known about it, and therefore I hadn't taken possession of it until my sister told me of it. Now, friends, I don't know how long you've been a born-again citizen of the kingdom of God, nor whether you've ever been told of the king's gift which was given for you on the occasion of the king's coronation. But friends, today, not as a sister, but as a brother, I'm telling you about this wonderful gift, and I hope if you haven't already, you will accept and receive today, not a cup and saucer, but the gift of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, not from me, not from any man, but from King Jesus. Now, I'm aware that some sincere Christians reason that if they are born again, then they receive the Holy Spirit when they got saved, and thus they've received all that there is to receive. But the Bible reveals that the baptism in the Holy Spirit is a subsequent, separate, distinct experience to salvation. I do, of course recognize that it's perfectly possible to receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit virtually simultaneously at the time you're saved. But for many believers, for all kinds of reasons, that is not their experience. And indeed, it wasn't the case in the early days of the church. For example, in Acts chapter 8, we read of how Peter and John were sent by the church in Jerusalem to visit new Christian believers in Samaria. And when they got there, they discovered they had not received the Holy Spirit. They had truly believed, and thus they'd been born again by the action of the Holy Spirit. They'd also been water baptized, we're told, but the Acts account is clear that they had not received the Holy Spirit. And so verse 17 tells us of Acts chapter 8, Peter and John laid hands on these new believers, and prayed for them to receive the Holy Spirit, and they received the baptism in the Holy Spirit. There's another example in Acts chapter 19, where Paul, I think you'd probably agree, Paul uh, was pretty theologically sound, and when he arrived in Ephesus, he found some disciples, and the first thing he asked them in verse 2 of Acts 19 was, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? You think, that's a strange question, because if they believed, they have become born again by the action of the Holy Spirit. But he wanted to know, did you receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit when you believe? They answered, no, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Perhaps they'd been brought up with the kind of teaching that I had as a child, because we sang things like, come into my heart, Lord Jesus, come in today, come in to stay. We've got no comprehension of the Holy Spirit's involvement. It was all about inviting Jesus into your heart. Perhaps some of you grew up like that. Perhaps some of you more blessed that you've had good teaching over the years. But Paul wanted to know, have you had this experience of the Holy Spirit? As I just said, I grew up in a church where we were not taught like, we for years. So, like these believers in Ephesus, I was saved. I was born again of God's Spirit, but I did not know there was another whole dimension of the Holy Spirit to be experienced. And maybe for some of you here today, your experience was similar to mine. You've sincerely thought that you received all there is to receive when you got saved through faith in Christ's atoning work. And if that is you, then I've got good news for you today. For there is more for all who are thirsty for more of God friends don't settle for just the salvation experience which jesus referred to as like a well or a spring of living water within you john 4:14 but today you can receive the rivers of living water experience which overflows from within john 7:38 when we're born again there's absolutely no doubt no it's not questioned When we're born again, the Holy Spirit comes and resides in the core of our being, in our spirit. The Bible variously talks about it as our spirit, with a small s, or our heart. It's not talking about the organ that pumps blood around. It's talking about our inner being. When we get saved, the Holy Spirit comes and resides there. It's often, as I say, referred to as the heart. But when we're baptized in the spirit, he fills our whole being to overflowing. Our body, soul and spirit with his presence and the evidence of his presence within becomes more evident including the ability to speak with an unlearned spiritual language. People baptised in the spirit usually experience a greater love for the Lord which touches their emotions with a greater freedom in expressing themselves in worship. Some of you might be thinking, well, it's alright for you. You're extrovert. No, I'm not actually. Before I was baptised in the spirit, I'd sit in a Sit in our um, our church traditional background. We were Salvation Army. It would irritate me if the cross was the wrong way around on the flag. <laughs> just, just I was so religious, and unbelievable until I was baptized in the Spirit. You ask my wife. We used to clap in the Salvation Army. We only clapped in a certain way. <laughs> well, I was so serious. But God had to free me up. <laughs> the baptism of the Holy Spirit just made all the difference. The Scriptures came to life. He came to life. It became more real. Hallelujah. Now, as I've already referred to, the Bible speaks of the experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit in two ways. A bit like two sides to a coin, is my understanding of it. It's referred to as, or described, shall we say, as an immersion from above, where the Spirit of God comes down. And it's also talked about as a drinking from within. John the Baptist, Jesus, and Peter, just by way of example, all speak of this experience to be like water baptism in the sense of being totally immersed in the Holy Spirit. I'll give you dozens of scripture references. The use, indeed, of the term baptism would suggest an outwards experience whereby our whole being is immersed, or shall we say, surrounded or like like clothed, as Luke twenty four forty nine says, in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit coming down over us from above. And many, many scriptures uh support that idea, that picture. Jesus, however, we can't go much higher in authority than Jesus himself, can we? He also likened the experience to one of drinking, as he did on the Feast of Tabernacles that I've already described to you. And that analogy of drinking is also supported by the description of the experience in Scripture as being filled with the Holy Spirit or to receive the Holy Spirit. Again, there are many, many references using that terminology. Now, I know, and there may be some here today, and I respect you, but I know that there are some Christians who make a distinction between the initial experience, calling that the baptism in the Holy Spirit, and calling subsequent such experiences as fillings. I believe, however, it's reasonable to conclude from the Scriptures that they are actually two aspects of the one and same experience. Outwardly, the invisible and yet real presence and power of the Holy Spirit comes down from above upon us, surrounding, enveloping us, immersing us, whatever language you want to use, whilst inwardly the believer receives the presence of the power of the Holy Spirit within, like drinking to the point of overflowing with rivers of living water flowing out from our innermost being. And today, I honestly believe Jesus' invitation is the same as it was on that last great day of the Feast of Tabernacles. His spirit is saying, if there's anyone here thirsty, then come to Jesus and drink. The experience is for thirsty believers. You receive it by faith. You receive it by yielding your whole being, your spirit, soul, and body to the Lord and the effect of being baptized in the Spirit will become evident. Some people say, oh yes, I've received the Holy Spirit. But there's no evidence. You can expect evidence because it's a supernatural experience. You can expect an increased love for God. You can expect that God the Father and Jesus become more real for you. You you can experience supernatural help in prayer. Romans 8 says, we don't know how to pray, but the Spirit of God helps us. You can experience greater power to witness and serve God. You You can expect a greater understanding of the scriptures. You can expect to be more in in tune with God's guidance for your will, for your life, a greater love for others, power to overcome temptation, a new dimension in worship. In fact, a whole entrance into a whole new supernatural dimension of life, including the availability, of course, of the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, You can receive this wonderful gift whilst in prayer on your own. In fact, I did. Many years ago, my wife had gone out to a meeting. I felt all rejected because I'd never (coughs) been invited. She was going out to one of these charismatic huddles. And I got desperate and knelt beside the bed and just poured out my heart to the Lord. Said, I need more of you. I'm dry, etc. The next morning I woke up as a totally different person. That's the truth. I threw the curtains open and said, what a wonderful day. I mean, that's just not me. That's not how I wake up. (laughs) It was supernatural. That's the truth. I'm not, I'm not embellishing it. So you can receive on your own. But as was the case, uh, sorry, and, and, and if you want an example of that in scripture, I mean, I mean, you can receive right now, even as I'm preaching. You know, I've been in meetings sometimes where the preacher's going or whatever, or even the worship and the Holy Spirit's just fallen. And you can receive like that. It happened, remember at the house of Cornelius? I mean, they were expectant. There was a huge crowd that gathered together, friends and relatives, remember? And it acts, and the scripture's very clear, even as he was preaching, the Holy Spirit came down on all of them. But it can also be helpful, and it's biblical, helpful to receive through the laying on of hands, as was the practice of the early disciples of Jesus, such as, as I've already referred to, in Samaria, recorded in Acts chapter 8, when Peter and John, we're told, laid hands on the believers to receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit. The laying on of hands, as I mentioned at the beginning, is another of the foundational doctrines listed in Hebrews 6.2 that you're looking at over these weeks. Time won't be, permit me to teach on it fully, but one of the uses of the laying on of hands is for the impartation and receiving of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. It's not there's anything magic or anything like that in the person's hands. Okay? It's more about a point of contact for you to help you connect. Not with them, but to connect with God. Then just like the the person that lays hands on you is to be like the conduit for the Spirit of God to flow through them to you. And it can be helpful. That's one of the uses. I'll give you some other uses just very quickly for the laying on of hands in Scripture to transmit a spiritual blessing as Jacob did to his grandsons in Genesis 48. And, of course, Jesus did the same. Remember when he gathered the children to him and he laid hands on them and blessed them, Mark chapter 10. Laying on the hands is also to confer authority for a specific task or ministry, as when Moses laid hands on his successor, Joshua, in Numbers 27. It can be to minister healing, as Jesus did, Luke 4.40. And of course, that also can include the anointing of oil as instructed in James chapter 5. It can be for the impartation of spiritual gifts as in 2 Timothy chapter 1. It can be for the appointment of deacons serving in the church, Acts 6, and elders, Acts 14, 1 Timothy 5. And also to send out traveling ministries from a local church, Acts 13. Many, many uses for the laying on of hands. We shouldn't do it carelessly. We should do it in expectation, in faith. But for today, I want to just simply round this teaching off by giving the opportunity for the laying on of hands to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. For as I've sought to show, it's not an optional extra, but it's a precious gift that God has given for all born-again children of his kingdom. Come now and receive. Whether that be for the first time or for a fresh infilling, whether you call it one thing or the other, I don't have a problem. I think it was the late Billy Graham who said, basically, forget all the argument over terminology. Where's the evidence of the power? (laughs) And that that's what we're looking for, isn't it? And I say that for myself. I'm in need of being. It doesn't, in Ephesians it says, be ye continually, is the tense, filled with the Holy Spirit. Lord, we want you, more of you, more of your fruit in our lives, more of your power in our lives. And so, the only requirement, it seems to me from Scripture, is one, you're saved, and two, you're thirsty. Anybody here saved? One or two. <laughs> Hallelujah. Any thirsty? Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. And let's lay hands on you just to help you receive a fresh endowment, a fresh powering, a fresh filling whatever language you want to use of the precious, precious Holy Spirit. Just let's stand, shall we? Holy Spirit, will you take what I've offered in weakness... Yes, please, bring revelation, bring understanding. But Lord, we don't want to just rest with understanding or head knowledge. We desire more of your Holy Spirit. I pray today, Lord God, that it will be, in some small measure, a fulfillment of what you prophesied and promised on that last great day of Hosanna when you said, let anyone who's thirsty come to me and that, that that you would baptize, you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. Lord, will you just come now? Come now, just come forward if you want, if it would help you to have hands laid on you this morning. Thank you, Lord.